Welcome to Lightfoot Radio. This is episode 37 and I'm your host GK. You can find us on the web at www.lightflintradio.com. You can email me at gk at lightflintradio.com. Our guest in this episode is Brian Gadawa, who we have had on the show before, and you can find that interview on our archives in episode 19. Brian is a professional filmmaker, a writer, and a designer, and he joins Cliff and I to discuss his latest book, Jesus Triumphant, the newest addition to his Chronicles of the Nephilim series. So here we go with Brian Gadawa and Jesus Triumphant. Alrighty, well, here we are back at Like Flint Radio. I'm your host, GK. On the line with me is my co-host, Cliff Garner. Greetings, hey. Cliff. How are you going? Hey, thank you. Thank you. Also on the line, we have our, the author of the book that we've discussed in our introduction here. Uh, we have Brian Gadawa. G'day, Brian. G'day, mate. G'day, mate. Thanks <laughs> thanks for coming on board, Brian. Um, Sorry, I had to. I, I know, I enjoy it. I enjoy it. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm from L- I'm actually from L.A., although I come by way of Chicago. So. Oh, Chicago. Chicago. You're a Midwestern boy, too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's funny you should say you're from L.A. because um, we had this bit of a running gag for a little while there where um, – uh, when I called Cliff at one stage there on his phone, it showed that um, my line was saying I had a Los Angeles prefix on my phone. So uh, the rumor went round that I was actually not in Australia, that I was actually in Los Angeles. So that was quite funny. <laughs> but um, but anyway, let's get into this discussion. Um, this book uh, of yours, Brian, is part of the Chronicles of the Nephilim series that you're working on. And I, I understand it's not finished yet, but... Um, like any good novel, your book gets better as it goes along, and then it builds to this great crescendo. And I found um, towards the end I didn't want to stop reading it, you know. And it has the elements of both fiction and fact in it. And I find the um, appendices are brilliant, and I really want to get to a discussion about those shortly. Um, and I don't want to encourage people to turn straight to the back of the book, but I was tempted to because I knew the appendices were there and I love reading them. But we'll deal with that. <laughs> Um, shortly, but um, before we do get to that and much deeper topics and concepts, Brian, can you give us a bit of a background to what the Chronicles series is about, please? Yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> Chronicles of the Nephilim um, is a series that we're up to the eighth book now. There's going to be nine total, uh, but it, it started about Oh boy, I actually started about five years ago. Um, I was actually did, doing some research. I, I'm a screenwriter in Hollywood, so I thought, what would be a unique movie that hasn't been done before? Something that also that I, you know, that I'm interested in. And, um, 
And I, I, I was doing research on Noah because no one had, had done a, a movie on Noah, right? And this was long before Darren Aronofsky's movie. And so I wrote a screenplay actually about it and I started going around town trying to get interest in it. And I'm, I'm not a, I don't have a lot of big connections. So I wasn't able to get very far. And then I heard about Aronofsky's movie and I thought, Oh, he's working on the movie. So it'll probably get made. And I thought, Oh, well, I, I missed out on that chance, but I, I the, the story was so fascinating, so interesting that I said, I got to get this out. Because I know that his version will probably be different and people have to get, have to hear the story because it was so profoundly fascinating. So I adapted it into a novel. But what happened was when I did the research for it, I realized that there is a storyline going through the Old Testament, going through the whole Bible actually that I had not seen before. And, and it was so fascinating that I, I just felt it had to be told. So Noah Primeval was the first book um, and then it went on to Enoch Primordial, which was kind of like a prequel. You know, I went back in time because Enoch is another famous biblical character. And from there on, I, I kind of went through, through the Bible. But what inspired the series was that I, you know, I'd always been intrigued by what I consider the most bizarre passage in the Bible, which is Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And there it talks about the, um, you know, the sons of God who are divine beings from God's counsel. They cut, they come to earth and they mate with the daughters of men and they bore them the Nephilim or the Nephilim, the giants. And that's what that word means. And, um, and this is always strange. And this happened right before the flood. And then, of course, that's tied into the flood story, which talks about the violence of mankind, the corruption of the flesh and how Noah was pure in that sense. And, this so this 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 bizarre event was kind of tied to the flood, and I had never really looked into it. I, I always just sort of wrote it off as a one of those weird things I might never understand. But um, I, I stumbled upon uh, Michael Heiser and his his work, and I realized, oh my gosh, this is connected to a storyline that goes throughout the Bible. And so what I decided to do was, um, <clears throat> this is a storyline that I call the War of the Seed, because in Genesis three, uh, when God is cursing the serpent. He basically says, look, I'm going to put enmity between your seed, between you and the woman, Eve, between your seed and her seed. And that enmity or hostility is what I call the war of the seed because it's sort of like the, the, the word seed, of course, means offspring. So it's like the offspring of Satan and the offspring of the serpent versus the offspring of Eve. But the, but scholars have pointed out that that's the, that passage has the first messianic prophecy in it because he says, you know, your offspring, Eve, shall crush his head and he shall bite your heel. And of course, in the New Testament, all the way through the Bible, but then in the New Testament, we, t- we hear about how Christ as Messiah crushes the head of the serpent. And so this is this fascinating storyline. And so what I decided to do was I said, okay, I, you know, how am I going to retell Bible stories? Cause first of all, everyone's heard them a hundred times, you know, and, and, um, this storyline, though, they haven't really heard. They haven't heard it told through this paradigm. And so I decided to go and f- everywhere that the Bible mentions giants, I would retell those stories and also that are connected to the watchers, which is another concept that we can talk about. But, um, so that's the, the was sort of the premise that that told me which books to write and which stories to tell, because these giants, these Nephilim, actually end up um, being part of this war of the seed. See, and uh, so by the time you know where you get Joshua and Caleb coming into the promised land, 
We have, you know, the spies coming back, right? And saying, hey, the land is full of giants. And they call them the Anakim. And it says that the Anakim are related to the Nephilim. And the Nephilim were the ones that were before the flood. And it turns out in Joshua and in Numbers and in Deuteronomy, we read about these m- many different giant clans. Some of them are called the Emim. Some are called the Zumim and the Rephaim. And so these are all different giant clans. And Joshua goes out of his way to hunt down these giant clans and get rid of them. But he doesn't get rid of all of them because some of them are left in Philistia. So by the time of David, we've got Goliath, but not just Goliath. There are more giants in the Bible during the time of David who were hunting David. Literally hunting him. So I ended up even also writing a novel about David Ascendant, I called it, and it, it talks about those f- those six giants, basically, who were hunting David. And so this is the kind of storyline that, that, that was intriguing me. But there was also another element to it that I also discovered in the research that comes out in the Chronicles of the Nephilim, and I call it the Divine Council Worldview. And this again, too, I, you know, I was um, mostly introduced to this through Michael Heiser's scholarship. And the Divine Council worldview is roughly this. In Deuteronomy 32, we read about how God, God says, when he separated the, the nations at Babel, and this is around 32 verses, uh, like eight through 10, it says, he separated the nations at the Tower of Babel. And when he did so, he allotted the nations under the authority of the sons of God, who, and th- these are these divine beings again. But the context of that is that these sons of God are fallen beings. They're not good ones from heaven. They're the, they're the bad guys because they become the host that the pagan nations worship. So, and then he says, but Jacob or Israel, I, I will allot to myself. So the, the picture that's, that's happening there is it, God is like saying, like Romans one where he says it gives them over, right? He's basically saying, look, after the Tower of Babel, you guys will continue to worship idols. So I'm just going to give you over to them. I'm going to place you under the authority of these demonic spiritual beings, basically. And, you know, the, the 70 nations that were listed in Genesis 11 was what the ancient people thought were the basic nation nations. And so there, you're going to be under the authority, but, but I, Yahweh will be the authority over Israel and our territory, our nation will be, you know, the land of Canaan. So there's this notion that of what you might call territorial authorities or uh, the spiritual principalities and powers behind the earthly powers. And this is a theme that goes throughout not only the Old Testament, but all of ancient Near Eastern thinking. You find it in Babel, Babylon, in Mesopotamia. You find it in Canaan. You find it in Egypt. Um, you know, you find it even in Greece and Rome. And so these kinds of beliefs were very that's how people thought in those days and the Jews were no strangers to it. And, and so this picture that, that I think the Bible is, is painting. Now I'm not saying this is the only picture. There's, you know, the scriptures are multifaceted, but this is one of these dimensions that I think I was, that I missed in my evangelical upbringing, right? And so the print, the principle here is, is that man in his fallen state is under these false gods of authority as they worship them. And these false gods are not just, you know, um, non-existent beings, you know, like fabrications. They're actually 
real spiritual beings, which is why we read in Daniel chapter 4 that the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece are battling Michael, the prince of Israel. That word prince actually is referenced to the spiritual watchers. They call them the watchers as well. And so this concept of these these nations have spiritual authorities behind them. So it's sort of like when the nations are at war, the spirits authorities behind them are at war. And then by the time of the New Testament, Paul starts using a more generic language where he calls them principalities and powers, but it's the same concept. Brilliant, and, brilliant and, explanation, Brian. Um, oh, thanks. Because I was going to ask you, 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 you must be reading my uh, question sheet here. Um, <laughs> I, I wanted to, I, I wanted to interject and just say, and, and I, what happens in your book is that you nail them all. You've got the, the Norse gods, the Hindu gods, the Near East gods. You've got even the, the gods from the Americas. Um, and, uh, no one, <laughs> no one gets away scot-free in this one because, uh, that's one thing that stood out, out to me when I was reading this. Um, you you got you got every single uh, category that there was, so uh, I found that I found it interesting and I enjoyed it. So sorry oh, sorry you. to interrupt. I just wanted to say that while you were talking about the gods, yeah, no problem. As a matter of fact, that's a major element of the storyline throughout the whole series, Chronicles of the Nephilim. And you're right, it climaxes in Jesus triumphant. But basically, what I do is I, I ask a, a, a you know, look, I, I'm, the books are fiction, all right, um, and I use a little bit of a fantasy element, which means I, I'm writing theological novels, not historical novels. But like you said, I, it's still all based on historical research, but I also integrate mythological research and other ancient Near Eastern research. And what I do is I say, look, <clears throat> in the Old Testament, there's a sense in which God says in multiple places that the gods of the nations to which these people sacrifice are demons, or the Hebrew word is shedim. And in other words, they're saying if they're not just false or non-existent beings, they're actually real spiritual beings of some kind. And so I said to myself, well, what if these spiritual gods of the nations, which the Bible says are the sons of God who came, you know, they're the authorities, they're, they're, they're fallen sons of God. Well, what if they were these sons of God from Genesis 6 that came down to earth and they were masquerading as gods of the nations, you know? So I sort of put that to flesh. And so I have the various gods throughout time history, like, for instance, in the earlier primeval days of Noah and Enoch, I have the Sumerian gods, uh, Anu, and then Inanna, right? And these kinds of things. But then as time progresses in the time of Abraham and it gets into Canaan, I have the Canaanite gods of Baal and Ashtart and Asherah. And these beings are real beings and they're fighting with the angels. And this was the element of the, you know, that I'm sort of showing the spiritual warfare that's going on throughout history as these demonic beings seek to maintain control over these nations and ultimately foil God's plan. How do they do it? By finding out who's in the messianic seed line and killing them. It, you know, they try to get rid of Noah. They try to get rid of, uh, um, uh, Abraham, right? And then they, and even they try to get rid of Rahab when they find out she's in the bloodline, you know? So it's this, this spiritual warfare motif. And I'm showing sort of the thing that we don't really see behind the curtains, you know? And that was the, that, that's the sort of picture that I go that leads all the way up to Jesus Triumphant. And this newest release, Jesus Triumphant, the principle is this. Well, look, if the War of the Seed is basically all about 
the serpent seed trying to defeat the messianic seed, well, when Messiah comes, that's going to be a climax, right? And what is it that he does? And, and what's that going to be like? And, and I was actually kind of afraid to write the novel, to be honest with you, because I do have a high regard for scripture. And, you know, um, I knew that Christians, Christians, you know, would hold the gospels being very close to themselves as, as they are to me, close to their heart. And so if I were to meddle with scripture, they might, you know, get really upset. But you know what? I decided, you know what? I, again, I'm, I'm writing a theological novel. I'm showing the spiritual reality and I'm, I tried my best to stay true. Even though I add some fictional elements, I stay true to what we do know about the Bible and I fill in, in, in between stuff that connects these weird passages that we read about that didn't make sense. So I'm connecting the things that are there with, with some fiction, but in a way that makes sense, you know? I, I, I like so, that. Oh. I like that, Brian. Look, there's very little to offend, um, uh, people who hold scripture dear, especially when you realize what you've just explained. Um, this is theological fiction for readers of fantasy. Um, also, I think they're going to enjoy the battle scenes. I love the battle scenes with the gods <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, you know, the good guys. Oh no, I'm giving away the book, but everyone's read the back of the Bible. Okay. So the good guys, the good, the good guys always win in the end, but the good guys win. Man, it's good to see those guys getting nailed. And, and, um, uh, those were some of the best parts of, uh, of that sort of, uh, fictional stuff that you had to, uh, you know, draw on your imagination, um, of, of those battle scenes, but I enjoyed that. But, but, but the person that really talked about that was, uh, was probably, uh, C.S. Lewis. Uh, that uh, talk about the uh, myth that is true, that, that, that there's a truth that you can explain in fiction that is very powerful, and that, uh, that that's exactly what he's doing. Yeah, that was my goal. My goal was to sort of say, yeah. look, I, I'm fascinated by mythology. I'm fascinated by all throughout history, and, and I don't think that this stuff, people just make this up willy-nilly out of the air. I think it. Uh-huh. I think it's sort of like the truth that's been twisted. And so my goal is to say, well, if, if these myths, these pagan myths have some truth to them, where did they get that truth and how did they twist it? And that's what I try to show is, you know, I, I, it's speculative, but I try to say, okay, well, maybe this is what exactly. the reality was that, and then they twisted it into their false God. Exactly. And, and, and you're very well with it, I think. Thanks. Uh, Brian, did you want to, Tell us a little bit about the background to this book itself, uh, Jesus Triumphant. And can you, can we start with the fictional elements? Um, I, I, because what, what I wanted to ask you about characters, the main characters, the brothers, um, Demas and Gestus and, um, fill out a bit about them first so people understand. Sure. What they're going to read about when they read it. And then we'll go into other, uh, go back to where we were with the deeper stuff because I think that's the part that will, um, uh, impress most people, but they'll also have need to understand that there is some fiction here. Sure. Well, you know what? Um, even the fictional characters are based on actual biblical notions, and I'm just trying to fill them out. So, for instance, 
Um, it's, it's kind of a, you know, my heroes are kind of action guys cause I'm, I'm a movie, I'm a movie lover. So, you know, I tend to love action and stuff. So I chose two, two brothers, like you mentioned, one of them is a bestiarius and a bestiarius is uh, a guy who fights wild beasts in the arena rather than fighting gladiators. And a lot of those guys, by the way, weren't, you know, we all know that a lot of gladiators were slaves or prisoners, but the bestiarius were not, they actually, a lot of them got good pay for what they did. Um, and then, um, but one of the brothers is that, but he's, he's that way because he sort of has a death wish because he's lost his whole family. He's lost his wife. Rome has killed, killed his love. He's a Jew. They're both Jewish guys. And then his brother, um, uh, Gestus is a, an actor in the theater and he, he plays like Hercules, you know, which is also a, a sort of reminiscent of a G, of Jesus's story as well. But because of that, they're both really good with weapons and they're fighters. But here's the thing. They've sort of lost their hope and Rome is kind of, sort of crushing everyone. This is in the first century, right? And, but then what happens is they get taken up into the revolution because at the time of Christ, there were a lot of guys going around saying they were the Messiah, right? And, but you have to understand that when we say Messiah or Christ, we think of it as, yes, the guy who would come and atone for our sins. Well, that's not how they saw him. The Messiah in the Old Testament in the, in the first century was a military figure. It was the a son of David, like David, because David was called Messiah. He was, it means the anointed one, right? And basically, so Messiah basically means, you know, the one who saves his people and David saved his people. So they saw Messiah as being the man who would come and free them from the oppressor. And what happened was um, that there was a lot of unrest because of the oppression of Rome. And there were all these little, basically, they're kind of like terrorists, you know, rising up all around Judea. And Rome had to go and squash them. One of those... uh which became more influential in later years uh, was the zealots. And so the zealots were, were uh, you know, these radical revolutionaries who wanted to rise up and fight against Rome and they were Jews. And, but the problem was, is that a lot of Jews didn't support them. So they would even kill other Jews who wouldn't support them. So they were bad guys by and large. But here's the interesting thing. We all know about Barabbas, right? Barabbas was the guy who, who, uh, the crowd asked for to be released instead of Jesus. And, but what a lot of us don't know is, or, or forget is there's not much about Barabbas in there, but there's this one sentence, I think it's in Luke, where it basically says, you know, and Barabbas was the leader of a failed insurrection. And that's why he was in jail. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. So Barabbas was this warrior who had led it insurrection in Jerusalem. And I thought that would be a fascinating story. So I decided to try to tell his story and how these two brothers get sort of pulled in unwittingly at first, but get pulled into this zealot movement. And then what happens is um, Barabbas hears about this Nazarene who's going around Galilee, right? And he's claiming to be Messiah. So he's thinking, wait a minute, I, I want to be a Messiah figure. I want to be a warrior hero. And so he sends the two brothers to find out who this Nazarene is. And if he's for us, maybe we can join. But if he's against us, to kill him. So that's sort of how I have the, these, the, the main characters interact with Jesus and, and meet some of the disciples and follow him on some of the journey. So rather than focusing on Jesus per se and his story, I try to tell it through other people's stories and Mary Magdalene and how they intersect with Christ. And that allows me the freedom then to focus more on what I want to, want to, you know, deal with. But 
So yeah, I wanted to bring out this environment, which was a very, very unrest, a lot of uh, military problems, a lot of oppression, and a lot of terrorist unrest. And that's the, the, the milieu in which Jesus, you know, came to. And, um, you know, another thing to say is, is that, uh, well, yeah, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. That's sort of, that's, that's one side of the story, but the other side of the story, is this spiritual warfare mo- motif. So mm-hmm. if you remember what I said about the gods of the nations and what does Messiah do? Well, Messiah had been prophesied to come and basically disinherit uh, the gods of the nations. God would say he would take away their territories. You know, you, I allotted these territories to you. It's like a, a legal, they had the legal right to them, but then he's saying, I'm going to take your legal right away and I'm going to pull all nations into myself, into Mount Zion, right? And that was the purpose of Messiah. So you can only imagine how, how desperate these gods would be when Messiah shows up, right? And that's, mm-hmm. that's where the understanding of the spiritual warfare in Jesus's ministry comes to. I had always just sort of wondered, why is there not really anything about demons in the Old Testament except for one, you know, that taunted Saul, right? But there's really, you know, there, there's references to the demonic nature, but there's no real description of possessions or anything like that. And then all of a sudden in the Gospels, we see all this demonic activity. What is going on? Is this just Jesus sort of showing his power? Look, I am so powerful. I'm God. I have control over the spiritual realm. No, there's something more going on there. What he's doing is this. He's cleansing the land of evil. He's casting out those evil spirits. He's healing the sick, making the unclean clean, because that's what Messiah does to bring, to disinherit those gods of the nations and take back control. But here's, here's where some of it starts to make some more sense too, because the Bible doesn't really say where evil spirits come from. It, it really doesn't. Most Christians assume, oh yeah, they're fallen angels. Well, no, they're not. Because if you really look at, you study the notion of angels in the Bible, you'll find that angels or the Hebrew word is malachim. There's actually a kind of a hierarchy and there's, there's different levels. Like you have the sons of God and they're around God's heavenly council and they are divine beings. Actually, the Bible sometimes calls them gods. And mm-hmm. remember, these were the sons of God. Some of them fell in the days of Noah, and those were the sons of God who did. So they're divine beings. But then you have the Malachim, who are angels or messengers of God. And we always think of, you know, the, oh, angels and angel, but like a spirit being. But they're really not, because in the Bible, they have flesh and spirit. They eat food when they visit Abraham. They have in Genesis 6, they, they mate with human beings so they can mate and they have physicality. Now, I'll grant you, it's a, it's a different heavenly flesh. It's not like human flesh in that it can, can go between dimensions, right? So, of course, that's, that's true, but it still is a flesh. So angels are not evil, are not spirits in the sense of, are, are, are demons fallen angels? No, they're not. They're evil spirits, which is something separate, but we don't know where they come from. However, there is one, there is some material that does talk about what they might be, and that's the book of Enoch. And the book of Enoch, though it's not scripture, this ancient book, um, of first Enoch in particular, when we say that I'm usually referring to first Enoch, and we can explain that later, but yes. that's not important right now. But, but 
it gives a theory of where these evil spirits come from. And it suggests that the evil spirits or demons are the spirits of the dead Nephilim from that, from that days of the flood and such. And that makes sense because if you think about it, if the Nephilim are the result of this angelic human union, then that means they're a strange hybrid. And that's a violation of God's holiness, which he keeps things separate, right? He keeps male-female separate. He keeps heavenly-earthly divides separated. But that violation is what makes it unholy. And so, consequently, the Nephilim that are born from them are not the same as just normal humans. So, when humans die in the Old Testament, it says they go to Hades. So back to the Nephilim. So this this theory of the Nephilim, look, I'm not sure if it's entirely correct. Like I said, I don't think Enoch is scripture, but um, if you are an honest, good scholar of, of the Bible, you'll have to face the fact that all throughout the history of the Christian church, uh, the book of Enoch and the Jewish, um, you know, Israel before that, had high regard for the book of Enoch. It was not rejected. It was con- considered, some considered it scripture, but even those who don't still considered it a valuable reference. Why? Because the New Testament itself quotes and paraphrases Enoch in several books like Jude and First and, and Second Peter. So, so the book of Enoch has respect and regard from the Bible itself. Therefore, we should have some respect for it. So here's the, the theory about, about demons then. If they are the spirits of the dead Nephilim, that makes some sense because humans go to Sheol or Hades, which is the, the place of the dead, the abode of the dead. This is in the Old Testament, by the way. I'm speaking. Things may be different in the New Testament. But, um, but the Nephilim... They wouldn't necessarily go to Sheol if they are part angel, right? But if they're part angel, then maybe they are these spirits who are still wandering the earth. Um, and particularly they were wandering Canaan. Why? Because that was their location. And so now it makes sense if Messiah comes into the land, the demonic activity is sort of the sign of the last stand of the Nephilim, right? These are the spirits that are saying, this is the Messiah, we're going to fight against you. But Jesus casts them out because Messiah would be the ultimate destroyer of the Nephilim out of the, the holy promised land of Israel so that Messiah could come in and bring salvation. Now, what what is salvation? Well, that's where the Jews misunderstood, thought he was a military hero. But in a way, he was a spiritual military hero because there was spiritual battles going on that we didn't see. And this is what I try to bring out a little bit in, in Jesus Triumphant is this notion of Jesus, you know, why, you know, what the spiritual warfare was that was going on at that time. What I wanted to do, Brian, um, while you're on the topic of um, uh, these uh, non-canonical texts, I wanted to read a footnote from your book. Um, which I thought was a great explan- explanation of, uh, and it's only short, so just give me one second. Sure. Uh, this is from your book, and it's in your appendix. It's a footnote in the appendix, and it's and it's your writing, but I thought this is great. These pseudepigraphal texts do not have canonical status as scripture. Free Enoch is Gnostic in its orientation, but they do illustrate an interpretive tradition that is in accord with the biblical cosmic war we have been examining textual food for thought so i thought that would kind of 
Um, I had planned to bring that up later on, but I thought it would kind of support uh, what you were talking about there with regards to um, with to regard with regards to Enoch. I guess while we're on this topic of Enoch um, at this point, we might as well. I want to ask you this question, um, Brian. Can you talk about the relationship between Second uh, Peter, Jude, and One Enoch? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, in fact, I wrote an entire article, a scholarly article on the Book of Enoch. Um, and you can get it at my, at the website, chroniclesofthenephilim.com. Look under links and there's a bunch of articles and stuff. And if my article isn't there, you can, you can find it somewhere on there, but, um, it's, it's free, it's free to read. But yeah, um, <clears throat> couple, couple things is, Again, I te- I'm kind of from the traditional background of sola scriptura in the sense of the Bi- I you know to me the Bible is our our ultimate final def- defining authority for what I believe spiritually and and doctrinally etc. Um, but that doesn't mean that there isn't any truth in anything else. And I think unfortunately as Christians sometimes we get this notion that therefore there's no truth in anything else but the Bible, and that's just not the case. But um, but nevertheless. It was precisely, you know, I, I always have, obviously, anything outside of the Bible, though, it doesn't have the same authority, so it doesn't carry the same weight to me. Um, and so, consequently, if you might quote something to me from some other Jewish legend or Jewish text, you know, it may be helpful, insightful in understanding how to interpret something in the Bible, because sometimes there's a lot of words we don't know what they mean. Um, but nevertheless, the Bible is going to take precedent. However, the reason why, you know, and I'd always, you know, I'd known about the Book of Enoch, and I knew that the Book of Enoch, and in case people don't know, um, the Book of First Enoch, it's the Book of the Watchers, is what mostly what we're talking about here. That's a book that the reason why we're referring to it is because it 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 tells the story of Genesis six in a more expanded way, and it also brings Enoch into the story as well. Um, but it tells the story of Noah and the flood and the giants and the watchers, and it sort of gives a lot more details. And um, so, of course, a lot of Christians think that, oh, that's just a mythical extrapolation or whatever. Um, and it very, very well may be. But here's the thing. Um, I, I, because of my commitment to soul scripture, I ended up changing my regard for the book of First Enoch and gave it and ending up giving it a high regard. And the reason why was because the New Testament itself actually quotes Enoch, doesn't just quote it, it actually paraphrases content. And so um, in the book of Jude is, is, is the classic case where Jude talks about how Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict the God ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness, yada, yada. And Jude is, is saying, Enoch says this, and the, that quote comes from the book of first Enoch. And many people will say, oh, well, yes, but just one quote from one sentence doesn't mean the whole book is good. True, true. But, but not necessarily because what about when he, when the Bible quotes Isaiah? Does that mean only that verse in Isaiah is true, but not the rest of it? You know, um, but, but it goes beyond it because the book of Jude is addressing false teachers and it doesn't just quote Enoch in that moment. The whole book actually follows notions and themes and the very sort of genre of Enoch, the book of first Enoch. So it's drawing its content from the book, not just quoting it. See, that's why I think it's really, 
really important to, to, to recognize this. And that's why I started saying, well, hmm, if the apostle Jude really used the book of Enoch to examine some of these scriptural things, then I have to consider it with a much higher regard than I used to. And, and of course, you know, first Enoch is, is not the only book that, I'm sorry, uh, Jude is not the only book that, that references this content. Also, it's in second Peter, like, for instance, um, Oh, let's see here. Or first Peter. That first Peter is a classic, uh, verse. It's another one of those strange, obscure passages that it, they're not, it's not really clear and scholars are divided. However, uh, it's the passage in first Peter 3.18 and it talks about how Christ, uh, was put to death in the flesh on the cross, right? And he was made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. And this is a passage that also follows the Enochic paradigm and I think the Enochic notions. And um, it's one of the passages that I decided to also influence my Jesus Triumphant novel because there's there's two different there's several different schools of thought and one of them believes that Christ um that this is just a metaphor, you know. Um or that it's it's some other weird thing. But a lot of scholars will say that, well, basically when Christ died on the cross, his he went down in his spirit into Hades and because he was dead for three days, right? And it, while he was there, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Who are the spirits in prison? Well, they were the ones who were disobedient. And the spirits are not spirits of humans. It's the word for spirits in that passage in Greek is never used of, of the human being. Um, it's, it's used of angels. And so, um, they are the ones who are imprisoned and they were from the days of Noah. Well, who were those? Those were the Genesis six angels, right? So it kind of all makes sense that Jesus is going down there. He's proclaiming his, remember how I said this battle's gone on and Christ finalizes it. Well, in his death, dissension, resurrection and ascension that whole package that was his final victory over the this this battle where he wins the war and he goes down into Hades and he proclaims to those spirits you know his victory it's not he's not proclaiming the gospel he's proclaiming his triumph over them this historic battle right and and i i actually bring this into my my Jesus triumphant novel and I try to describe Hades what it might be like through the eyes of a Jewish mindset you know rather than like through you know if you think of Hades like if you know most of us think of the Greek notion or we're influenced heavily by um Dante or Milton but those guys were influenced by the Greeks and I'm like I didn't want to do a Greek version of Hades was there is there a picture of Hades that the Jews had cuz I wanted to be more Jewish about it well I found out Guess what? The book of Enoch had a kind of a geography of Hades. So I use that to tell the story in Jesus Triumphant where he goes down into Hades and he, you know, he brings that victory back with him. But we also have these other passages like in Ephesians, right? Where, where Paul says how when he ascends, he carries with him a train of captives. Well, there is this notion that's in the ancient world and all throughout the Bible of what we call the triumphal procession. What that was, was when a, when a, a king or a victor would have victory over another nation or another city, he would take the, the, uh, defeated foes, dead or alive, 
tie them up and drag them through the city. And it was his way of sort of saying, you know, we are the new victors of the city. We rule the city now. These are your previous rulers. Look at how pathetic they are. Or they would bring them back to their home city and just say, look at the great victory we have. And this was a common notion that goes throughout the text. Well, that's what the Ephesians passage is talking about, where it talks about how, well, not only that, but even the first Peter passage says that in the end, where it says that, that, that Christ is a victory over the principalities and powers after he's ascended to heaven. But it says that he has this train of captives. Well, who are those captives? Well, the captives are the defeated gods of the nations or these these fallen watchers, right? So I bring all that into the story as well, which is sort of hard to, to imagine. But um, I try to bring that picture in there because – that's what the Bible talks about. That's the theology of what's going on. And what it actually looked like, I don't know. We don't know. But I try to sort of create that scenario and explain it in that way. The intro, outro, and incidental music used in this episode of Like Flint Radio is by Acrolith. And we are grateful to Brian Day and the lads from Acrolith for allowing us to use it. We plan to have them on the show soon, so stay tuned for that. But right now, let's return to Brian Gadawa and Jesus Triumphant. In the Old Testament, there really isn't the notion of this place of punishment with, you know, multiple levels and all this kind of stuff. There's just the, the Old Testament right. saints just believe that you, all the dead, both the good and the bad, went to Sheol <laughs> and they awaited the final judgment to some degree. And then in, right. the, in the intertestamental period, that that's where you get the development in even in the Jewish notion they start to develop and and more into the Christian era uh, where you read some of the apocryphal Christian works like the Gospel of Nicodemus and such that's where they start to right. increase and add well there's punishments going on down there but in reality right. like in the New New Testament that Gehenna um, when we read the word hell English word hell it's actually Gehenna and and I think hell can be a, a bad misnomer because we're thinking that oh they die and they go down to this fiery place but it's really not the case Gehenna or is a valley right outside of Jerusalem and it was a famous location where Isaiah talked about uh where there was great slaughter and actually there it was a place where Molech uh, sacrifice their sons. I'm sorry. The the Israelites sacrificed right. their sons and daughters to Molech, and it became the symbol right. for final, devastating, ultimate judgment. So when Jesus talks about Gehenna, he's actually referring to the final judgment, not like when you die you're going to go to burning hell. It's more like right. you, in the end, in the final judgment, you will get Gehenna. You will get the final burning judgment type of thing. And so I tried to picture that in my scenario where you've got this abode of the dead and there is a, a Gehenna, a, a, a flaming sort of valley, but it's only one valley right outside underneath right. In, in the world of Hades, you know. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, sure, Dante draws from, from the Jewish, but he also draws heavily, of course, as well from the Greeks. Oh, yeah, from, yeah, he, he, all that, uh, his, his hell isn't like... Because the, the battle of Hinnom, the, the sons of Hinnom, I, I guess they, they burned garbage uh, outside of the city there. After, you know, um, the, the, you know, Molech was no longer worshipped. And so so they, they, they were, that, that, that was a place of fire. Whereas in, in Dante's hell, it's a place of ice. Oh, interesting. And, and, and when we think of Inferno, we think of a hot place. But it's not necessarily hot. 
it's it's a place of uh of, uh, really a, a place where you throw <laughs> but uh but but it doesn't necessarily imply imply heat and and, and dante doesn't he he has eyes it, it's it's really a really a, an interesting picture that he he draws with it um, yeah, that whole that whole punishment thing. I, I actually think the origin of that actually comes from uh, Persia, doesn't it? Uh, sure. There's some influence of that, but quite frankly, mm-hmm. uh, there is the pseudepigrapha and apocrypha, mm-hmm. and the cre- early Christian documents is where a lot of that started yeah. coming in, coming into play. And by by that time, I, I don't think Persia was as much involved, but but um, I'm sure that it has some influence. Uh, Brian, um, one of the things I wanted to ask you um, was the ultimate evil power in in Jesus triumphant is this being called Belial, um, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to being called Satan. Yeah, can you tell us why he's called Belial, and also tell us about why he's considered the prince of both power and the prince of Rome. Ah, excellent question. Um, one, another one of these sort of common evangelical things that we are, you know, we just sort of pick up and we don't really, we assume it's, it's in the Bible is this, this word Satan and Satan we use as a, a proper name for a being, but really starting in the new old Testament, it's not a proper name. It's actually, it's actually a transliteration of Hebrew, Hasatanos, and it basically means the adversary and, um, or the accuser. And so consequently, you know, look, there's nothing wrong with calling him Satan, you know, cause it, it becomes a, a, a good handle. But what I'm saying is to, to know, to understand the Jewish background of it, it's quite, it's a little bit different than the way we think of it. And so in the Old Testament, the Satan or the accuser was really part of God's heavenly court. He was the one that would come before the holy council of God, which was like a legal court. And this is where the notion of covenant is very, very heavy in the Old Testament. Again, a lot of Christians aren't taught this um, because we have a sort of a simplistic teaching. But the notion of covenant is a very legal legal binding thing and it's the way god operates throughout the old and new new testaments and and covenant is legal and therefore god's court heavenly council is a legal court and the satan brings his accusation to the court god counsels with his other divine beings and then he renders verdicts and this is the kind of stuff that goes on in micah 3 goes on in Job 1 and 2, right? When the sons of God around God's counsel and the Satan comes and says, hey, you know, Job, he's not going to stick with you. You know, that's the whole, that's the whole picture that we see going on. And, and, you know, remember how earlier I was talking about how God sort of gave over these nations to, gave over the nations to these rebellious sons of God, plural. But then in the New Testament, you don't really see much of that. You hear a lot about the Satan. And that, that always kind of made me wonder. And I realized that that where a lot of it comes back in is when Paul talks about principalities and powers. And that's the principalities and powers that are behind the earthly powers. However, the Bible talks more strongly of Satan, and it calls him the god of this world multiple times, by the way. Jesus says that. And that makes you go, well, now, wait a minute, the world cosmos, you know, what, what about all those other beings? I thought you said that, you know, the other nations were under their power. Well, 
Um, Walter Wink has written a book on uh, several books on some famous books called like one of them is called Naming the Powers. And he goes, he explains a little bit of this, I think, in a very helpful way. But the ancient notion is, and now this, this might be a little bit speculative, but because it, it references some of more of the pseudepigrapha, but it does make, give some explanation to it. And that is this. If Satan, if the Satan, if Belial, oh, I, you know, I, I apologize. I, I didn't address the fact that I call him Belial. And the reason why I call him Belial is because he has many names in the Bible. And I wanted to sort of make that point because Paul even says that, you know, when he's in talking about Corinthians and he's saying, you know, hey, you know, don't, uh, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols or, or don't uh, unite with a, with a pagan in sexuality because what does the temple of Belial have in common with the temple of God? And, and so Belial, the word Belial in the Old Testament means um, like wickedness. It's the supreme wickedness. And they would use it of, of men who were particularly wicked. They would call them sons of Belial. And um, so and and so what I'm saying is in the New Testament, there's a couple references where it shows that the Satan is actually referred to as Belial. He has different names. He has a name in the Old Testament that some scholars say is Halal ben Shakar. We read about that in Isaiah 14, I think it is. And and there's also other texts where they call him, uh, not in the Bible, but they call him Mastema in some pseudepigraphal texts. They call him Samael as well. And so the the point here is just that he's called by many names, but he's the sort of the same being. And um, so what I wanted to do was I, I called him Belial because of this notion of these these this wickedness. But nevertheless, um, you can equate that with the Satan. That's fine. But why is he the god of this world? What happened to the other ones? Well, here's what, where Walter Wink kind of gives some, some, sheds some light on the, on the topic. And he makes the point that, well, Rome had conquered the known world at the time. And so when the Bible writers talk about the world, they're talking about the Roman Empire because that's all they knew. And to them, that was the world, right? They're not thinking of America. They don't even know that exists, right? So to them, the world is the Roman Empire. And the Rome had conquered all the other sort of nations, right? Well, what if, if Belial was the, spiritual authority over Rome and Rome conquers the other nations, well, then that would make sense how, in a sense, he, the, uh, Belial would be the spiritual authority over all the other spiritual authorities, right? So they would still be around, so to speak. You'd still have the gods of Canaan, but but Belial would sort of be the god of this world, the, the supreme uh, false deity, if, if that would be a good word to use. And so that, that's why in Jesus Triumphant, I sort of bring that picture where the, you know, Belial is sort of the chief guy and he's the one who has the authority. Why? Because remember how I said the spiritual authorities are tied to the earthly authorities. So if the earthly authorities are conquering everybody, the spiritual authorities are going to be the ultimate authority. And so that's kind of what's going on. And that's why Jesus' main battles are with the Satan or Belial because he's that chief deity. Doesn't get rid of the other guys, but it does say that he's sort of – therefore, remember the temptation in the, in the wilderness where Satan says, if you but worship me, I all these kingdoms of the earth are mine to give over to whom I wish. That's not just some exaggerated lie. That's literally true. He could – he literally – 
had the control because Rome controlled everything. He could have given those kingdoms over to Jesus. Why? Because he was the territorial spirit or the authority over those nations. And that's what some of that starts to make sense. This spiritual warfare paradigm can make some sense. And um, yeah, so that's that's the picture that I have. And so when Christ comes in, um, well, I can get into a whole other a- angle of, of where these gods come f- or, or where these gods are connected because when Christ, near the end of his ministry, I always thought it was weird that, you know, he's going around Galilee, he goes down to Jerusalem, he goes back up to Galilee, but then he goes over and near the end of his ministry, he goes over to Tyre and Sidon. And then he ends up at Caesarea Philippi, and I'm like, why would he do that? Because he his ministry was to the Jews, right, to the people of Israel. And Tyre and Sidon were part of Syria, and they weren't really part of that land of Israel. Well, it turns out Tyre and Sidon were the chief chief cities of the goddess Asherah and the god Baal. And these were the supreme deities of Canaan. And Canaan was that land which, of course, God was taking over for Israel, right? So I think that there's some spiritual warfare going on that Jesus had to take care of over at Tyre and Sidon. And I bring that into the Jesus triumphant story in a really fascinating way that I, I won't I won't spoil it. But um, uh, it sort of explains why he does that. And then he ends up at Caesarea Philippi. And this is the place where, you know, remember where he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. And, you know, um, yeah. You know, what's going on there, right? I mean, is that just, you know, is that just, oh, he, you know, the Roman Catholics say, oh, upon this rock means the, he's building it upon Peter and the papacy. And the Protestants say, no, no, no. He's, the, the rock is the, the proclamation of Christ's identity as, or Jesus' identity as Christ. Well, I think it's actually, maybe it's a little bit of both, uh, but I don't think it's either. I think what he was saying was this. Caesarea Philippi was in the land of Dan, which was in Bashan, and, and that was a, an area that had completely fallen away from Yahweh. They worshipped all these false gods. It was in control. But also, Caesarea Philippi was at the foothills of Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon is a very, very important spiritual location because in the Book of Enoch we read that was the location where the watchers or the sons of God came down from heaven and began their fallen deeds in the very beginning during the days of Noah. So Mount Hermon had always in the Jewish understanding and even Canaan had been this cosmic mountain of the gods. And so biblically it represented the spiritual headquarters of evil. And where Jesus said, I will, upon this rock I will build my church, he's actually referring to the rock, the mount, the mountain before him, Mount Hermon. And he's basically saying, and I, I explain this how that all works, but he's basically saying, God's going to come and destroy this cosmic mountain of evil, and I'm going to build my holy mountain upon it. Because the the notion of the cosmic mountain is one of these ancient Near Eastern concepts that we're not familiar with because we don't think in these terms. But in the ancient world, they saw mountains as being the locations of deity where, where the gods dwelt. This is why even the Jews did, right? Mount Sinai, right? And then in the, in the time of David and in the time of the New Testament, Mount Zion became God's holy mountain, God's holy location. And so 
this is the ancient world fought in terms of these cosmic holy mountains. And so it's almost a battle of mountains, right? And Jesus is basically saying, I'm going to destroy this, this, you know, mountain of evil. I'm going to build my mountain on top of it. But there's something else that he says. He goes, the gates of Hades shall not prevail. Well, guess what? Where he was standing when he was saying that was at a location called the sanctuary of Pan at Caesarea Philippi. And it was called the Gates of Hades because they believed, and Josephus even writes about this, they believed that it was the cave there led down to the abyss, which led to Hades. And so you see, Jesus is actually, he's not just saying some generic statement. He's literally saying, These, this Gates of Hades is not going to withstand my attack. And I, I brought all that into Jesus' triumphant in a, in a really cool spiritual way that, that I think readers are going to really enjoy. But it explains some of these stranger passages in the New Testament that we don't get. Like, why did he go and get transfigured? What was that about? Well, guess what? He went, he got transfigured right after he was at the Gates of Hades. And guess where he went to get transfigured? Mount Hermon. And what's the point of transfiguration? It was sort of showing his glory. Well, what happened to Moses? Remember Moses, when he would be in the presence of God, he would come back and he would be glowing. He was being transfigured. But because he was fully human, he wasn't ever fully transfigured. It would fade. But Jesus goes on that mountain. It's like he's saying, I am a holy one of God. I'm the the son of God. And it's a declaration of his his divine being, because he's one of the divine sons of God, but he is the unique son of God. And the transfiguration is sort of his proclamation of war. It's like saying, I'm, I'm the one who's going to come and, and, and destroy you guys. And so there, it's this whole spiritual package of what's going on there. It's not just this sort of, wow, he was glowing. He must be God, you know? Yeah, no, it's yeah. actually, it's all connected because the um the uh, uh the, the 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 sons of god who surrounded god's heavenly council they're called shining ones because they shined like burnished bronze and even even the satan was called shining one and so by jesus shining he's like saying i am a divine i am divine but i'm going to conquer all you guys so it's, yeah it's a, a whole sort of package of a motif that's going on there we're going to take a short break here on the other side of this break we're going to talk to brian about near eastern ducks and suicide we'll be right back in the primeval history of genesis an ancient war began between the seed of the serpent and the seed of eve Fallen angels called Watchers begot a race of giants called Nephilim. Their goal, to stop the bloodline of the promised seed. But God had other plans. Chronicles of the Nephilim is a biblical fantasy series of novels that charts the rise and fall of the Watchers and the Giants in the stories of the Bible and in between. Read all eight novels from Noah Primeval all the way to Jesus Triumphant. Available on Kindle and paperback at Amazon.com. Go to ChroniclesOfTheNephilim.com and enter a world of ancient history and biblical imagination. That's ChroniclesOfTheNephilim.com.
Before we move on too far, Brian, I wanted to ask you about uh, Belial. Uh, I know we're going back a little bit, but I want to ask you about the power that Belial has in your book and in reality. Uh, this power and ability to, ability to influence people even unto suicide. Oh, right, right. I, I, listen, I don't want, I want to be careful not to give too much of the story itself yes, yes, away. No, yeah, so I'm not going to say me. the character, but you have a character <laughs> committing suicide. And well, we all know we all know um, uh, Judas did, so that's no right, that's no surprise, right? right. Uh, so yeah, I definitely bring that in, but I also yeah, I do. I I, I bring it in as well into um, another major character. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Um, well let let let's say let's say this that 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 um. Okay, let, let me explain this. When when Barabbas and Jesus are 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 shown to the people, and the people are the people choose Barabbas, give us Barabbas instead of Jesus. It just so happens that Barabbas's name was Jesus, <laughs> Jesus Barabbas, and Jesus was Jesus called the Christ. So they have the same name. Is that an, is that just an irony? I think or a, co- a coincidence? I don't think it is because there's this notion. Um, a theological notion that I that I explain in there, and it's tied back to Azazel. What is Azazel? Well, ultimately, Azazel is one of the fallen watchers that we read about in Enoch, who was one of the leaders of that gang of fallen angels. But in the book of Leviticus, when God talks about atonement on the Day of Atonement, he he describes these the scapegoat that goes into the wilderness, and he says, "One goat I will put my hands upon, and the sins of the people will go on them, and I will send that goat into the desert of Azazel. This goat is for Azazel. The other one will be sacrificed for the sins of the people." Wow, is that weird? What does that mean? Well, what does Azazel mean? Does that mean they're sending? The goat as a sacrifice to Satan, to uh, to Azazel, the, the the fallen angel. No, I don't think what's that saying. What what the the Levitical text is actually describing is that Azazel represents the chaos of 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 those who are outside the covenant, and they believe the Jews use the desert as a metaphor for chaos. You know, in other words, the desert where all the chaos creatures exist, and. Azazel was the master of those chaos creatures. So when he's sending that goat off, the scapegoat, into the wilderness to to Azazel, it's like saying, I am sending your sins out into chaos, right? But then I'm also atoning for them as well. So this is actually what I think is a reflection of what's going on in that transfer between with Barabbas and Jesus, that what happens? One of the lambs or goats in this case maybe one of the lambs jesus is the one that sacrificed for sins and barabbas becomes the other goat that's sent off into the wilderness of azazel or chaos and incidentally the jews would um they were supposed to just let him go live into the wilderness but they ended up um over time they ended up adding a tradition where they would take the goat up to a cliff and cast the, the goat to its death over the cliff. So, um, if I'm bringing in this Azazel concept, imagine what may have happened to Barabbas when he was released 
did he just go out and continue to be a revolutionary or did he finally realize what was going on? And that's what my novel, I, I do try to, 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 to depict that in there. I was going to talk about that part with Azizel in there <clears throat> and it, and you're the author so um, you're entitled to give away <laughs> parts of your book because I was trying not to I don't I, I don't want to give too much of the story away because I think the story is interesting um, sure but I want to talk about the uh, concepts that underpin it now I want to talk about um, the Near Eastern Duck Brian um, and I want to read from your book um, I, I, I'm, I'm saying this partly in jest because it's a good analogy but I, I, I will read this from your book and then I want to talk about um, what why you've put it there you say here if it walks like a an ancient Near Eastern duck and talks like an ancient Near Eastern duck, then chances are they thought it was an ancient Near Eastern duck, not just the appearance of one having no reality. It would be a mistake to claim that there is a single monolithic ancient Near Eastern cosmography. There are varieties of stories with overlapping imagery and some contradictory notions, but there are certainly enough commonalities to affirm a generic yet mysterious picture of the universe. And that picture in scripture undeniably includes poetic language. The Hebrew culture was imaginative. They integrated poetry into everything, including their observational descriptions of nature. Um, and, and, and it goes on. But I think it's a good um, yeah. way, of, way of explaining why you talk about the things that you do. And it also helps us understand... Um, a bit, especially of the Hebrew uh, uh, culture and uh, view of uh, the universe. Can you talk to that a little bit more? We already have a little bit, but can you talk about, you know, the integration into your book of, of these other? Sure. Well, you know, this, this can become a controversial thing. There's a lot of debate over it right now, but there right. is, you know, the, the picture of the cosmos that the um, biblical writers are operating under is an ancient ancient Near Eastern notion, and they all thought this way. And it's really, you know, I mean, if you really study it, it's, it's clearly there. Um, but, you know, it's basically the notion that, you know, the earth is flat and it's at the center of the universe and the sky is like a solid dome and the stars and the suns go around the earth, right? It's, it's not heliocentric and all this. Um, and there's three tiers. There's heavens above the earth and then Hades below. And this is a picture that, that a lot of, um, uh, the debate over it is, well, does that make the Bible wrong because it's not accurate? Or some Christians try to say, oh, it's just metaphor. They didn't really mean it. But how could they know, how could they have a metaphor of something they didn't know? They didn't know the earth was a globe back then. So they, they, they describe what they saw and that's what they thought it was. Does that make the Bible wrong? Does that make it bad or, or not truthful? Well, no, I don't think so because I don't think the Bible's, God's intent is not to communicate to us uh, you know, the physical geography of the universe. His goal is to communicate to us faith and obedience and what that means to know God. And, uh, so consequently, the people of that time era don't know things we know now, but that's not the point of what the Bible's telling. But nevertheless, it is the picture in which they, in which they operated. So I wanted to use that, that, that world, and that's why I have Hades. Because I mean, you know, does anyone believe that 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 there's a? Does any Christian believe that there's a? Uh, uh, well, some do actually now, I guess, um, believe that there is a, a literal physical hell that's in the in the center of the earth, and I I don't, but um, but I don't think that 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 makes the scripture um unbelievable. I think um, 
I think it's just a matter of saying, well, what, what is the purpose of Scripture to communicate? And it's not a science book. It's not trying to teach us science. It's using the notions. It's Theologians call it accommodation. John Calvin called it accommodation. It's like God lisps to us like ch- little children because we wouldn't understand the reality so he uses concepts that we right. do understand. Right. And I don't have a problem with that. Some Christians do. But one of the other elements is that as I study the Bible, I, look, I'm committed to it as the Word of God and I tend to be actually more of a, from a Reformed background and very conservative. But look, as I study it, there's a lot of imagination that God uses and we don't have to be afraid of it. We don't have to literalize everything um, because God is more creative than we are, you know? And one of the examples I like to use is Leviathan. This is, this is what shows like God uses imagination to describe the spiritual realities of things. The sky rolls up like a scroll. What does that mean? Is that literal? No, I don't think so. I think it's all part of this package of, of he's trying to communicate the seriousness of what's going on. One of these things is Leviathan and Leviathan shows up in all, in all my novels. Why? Well, some Christians believe Leviathan is a is a, a a dinosaur or something, or just a sea monster or a whale or something like that. But I don't. I've studied enough to to I I believe, and I've I've written a whole article on Leviathan. Again, it's free. You can you can find it at my website. But um, Leviathan is a sea dragon of chaos because the ancient world believed that the sea was the world of chaos. Why? Because they had no they had no ability to control it, right? It was an uncontrollable ma- on land they could control their cities and stuff, but the sea was uncontrollable and the sea dragon of chaos was the symbol of that chaos. Well, guess what? In all ancient religions, Babylon, Mesopotamia, Canaan, as well as the Jewish, they all use this notion of their god conquering the sea dragon in order to to show that their God has power over the world of chaos and he establishes his covenantal order, see? And and incidentally, that's something that the Bible itself is doing because we read, in, for example, in um, – let's see if I can find it here um, – uh, yeah, yeah. So Psalm 74, there's a description. God is describing the, the Red Sea when he parts the Red Sea, right? During the time of Moses, it says, you divided the sea by your might. And, 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 and then it says, you broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads, plural, of Leviathan. Leviathan is a singular creature, but it says it has multiple heads. What is that, right? And then it goes on to describe this. And, and, and my point here is, is that this is a description, a passage of, of David writing about how when God established his order, when he established the Mosaic Covenant, brought them through the Red Sea, he crushed the heads of Leviathan, meaning he has power over chaos to establish his covenanted order. This is very common in all the ancient world. They all fought this way. They all used it. And yes, it's a, it's a poetic reference. They don't believe it's a literal creature. They're, they're using it poetically to describe what's spiritually going on. So I decided in my novels to sort of bring that Leviathan creature and other creatures as well and literalize it. And he is a, he does represent chaos, but he is a literal creature that shows up and, and they have to kill him or battle him or what have you. And, um, there's another element that the ancient world had. And not just, in other words, not just 
destroying the sea dragon, but they also use this notion of their gods um, either destroying, drinking up, or conquering the sea or the rivers. And by the way, throughout the Psalms, it says over and over again, Yahweh drinks up the rivers, Yahweh stills the seas, Yahweh uh, conquers the oceans, these kinds of phrases all throughout scriptures, because again, this was a way of them describing their God having power over chaos. Well, I think this is why there's a there's something more going on, even in the story of Jesus. When Jesus was walking on the water, when he calmed the seas, was that just saying, oh, look, he has power over nature? Well, yeah, but I think it was more than that. I think he was playing out this very ancient notion that he is God because he has he has control over chaos, the chaos of the seas. So you see what I'm saying is, it's not – yes, I believe that it, it, it did happen historically. Jesus did walk on the water. He did calm the seas. But what I'm saying is there's something theologically more deeper going on there than just power over nature. He's actually claiming to be the God of covenant who establishes his covenant order and pushes back the chaos. And so that's a, another theme and, and somehow Leviathan fits in there. I won't explain how, but he fits into the story in a right. very fascinating way that people will really enjoy. Right. And I, I was uh, surprised when I read it. Um, Brian, going back to one of the characters in your book, um, I wanted to ask you about Eleazar the giant. Can you, can you talk to that topic, um, specifically about him, maybe, but just in general, why you decided yeah. to include, yeah, giants in the in your <laughs> book, yeah. Well, of course, you know, you're reading the Gospels and you say, come on, Godawa, there's no giants in the Gospels. <laughs> now, now you're really, yeah. you're jumping the shark, right? And uh, so I actually wasn't going to, but in my research, I wasn't going to have any giants, you know, and I thought the spirits of the Nephilim are enough. But in my research, I found in, the, in Josephus, and Josephus was a, you know, pretty good historian of that time period, and he, he writes about several giants um, during different times in history. And I was reading about one giant that was roughly around the first century and and there was a little bit of a, a little story behind it his name was Eliezer and he was 10 excuse me 10 and a half feet tall and I was really amazed to find out about this because he, he was actually a captive of the Parthians and the Parthians were kind of at bat, at, at war with Rome and but they they were also at that time trying to establish a treaty and what part of the treaty was they were giving this ten and a half foot giant to Caesar as a gift, probably to take him to Rome to be a gladiator. I, we don't know, but that's uh, that's all we know. Well, guess what? It turns out Herod Antipas, this is the famous Herod Antipas who's in the Gospels, he was part of that exchange. He goes up to the river Euphrates, which is north of, of Israel, and he negotiates. He, he worms his way into the negotiations, basically. And then he ha- he's part of handing over this giant over to the Romans, who then were supposed to take him to Antioch. But guess where all that occurs? That, that, that trip to Antioch was 50 miles north of Caesarea Philippi. And and I thought, and they don't say whatever happened to him. We assume he was taken to Rome, but we don't know for sure. And I thought to myself, well, when did this happen, though? And I was looking in the footnotes, and they, they actually sort of said, you know, for some reason they were explaining when this might have happened. And in the footnotes, it, it talks about how this may have happened somewhere around 34 AD, 33 AD, which is right right around those last few years of Christ, right? And I thought, wow, 
what if, you know, and this is where I, I put on my, my fictional cap because I, I thought I want to take an actual character in history and bring him in. And I thought, well, what if this giant found out that he's the seed of the serpent, right? And, and he found out that there's this Messiah going around in, in Galilee, right? And, and, um, and, and, he, and, and, and he's the enemy of this Messiah and he wants to kill him. So what if he escaped while he was being brought to Antioch, just 50 miles north of Caesarea Philippi? What if he escaped his captivity and goes down and finds out that Messiah just happens to be at Caesarea Philippi? And what would he do? And there's a guy, have a confrontation and I have a really amazing, uh, amazing spiritual situation that goes on there. I won't go into the details, but, um, it, it really ended up bringing a, a sort of climactic conclusion to some of the elements that go throughout the whole series. But it was really exciting to be able to to find. I would never, I would not have put a giant into the story if I had not found one historically. And it was amazing that it just happened to be around the time of Christ and around the location of where Christ might have been in that time period. Yeah, I really enjoyed that character, and um, I guess um, the the topic that we can't talk about because it'll give the um too much away to the story will actually spin some people out, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, so there's definitely controversy in there, definitely. Yeah, most definitely. Um, uh, listen, Brian, um, is there a, another book coming? You, This is not the final. This is not the final book. Um, the final book will be uh, called Jerusalem Judgment. And basically what it is is um, – you know, the gospel was started in, in the book of Acts, right? Um, we have all that going on, uh, where the gospel starts to spread, but it, it really, it didn't really explode into the world until the Jerusalem, the holy city Jerusalem and its temple were destroyed by Rome because that, then that pushed all the Jewish Christians to go out into the world. It dispersed them, right? And so there's a, there's a sense in which that's a sort of a dramatic climax to everything. And I've studied that event because Josephus is the only ancient historian who, who we have real detailed description. It's a fascinating story about Rome coming down. Remember how I said during the time of Christ, there were these revolutionaries and rising up and all that. They were very loosely affiliated. They were just new. They were sort of small groups. They weren't very organized. But by 70 AD, or by 66 AD actually, they had grown to such a, a point that they actually did start a revolt against Rome. And they caused Rome to send their armies. Titus sent his armies down to to stop it. And he ended up um, destroying the city and the Holy Temple. So it was a very climatic sort of end of, of a lot of, of, of something. And um, is interesting because there was a civil war inside the city with Several leaders claiming to be the Messiah, wanting to sort of take over. And there's a civil war inside the city of Jerusalem while they're being attacked from without by the Rome, by Roman, the Roman armies. And so this is a fascinating thing that Jesus actually prophesied. You know, um, he said that, you know, Roman armies will surround the city and the, the, all, all these stones will be un, this is in Matthew 24. He said all these stones will be un, un, unturned and destroyed. So there was this, you know, this sort of Jesus was point, and, and and a lot of his parables, Christians tend to think that they reference the second coming of Christ, but I think a lot of them are referencing the first coming, um, in terms of 
uh, that time period. In other words, that God would come in judgment and judge the people who rejected Messiah. So there's a sense in which I think that, that there's a judgment upon those who rejected Messiah that has to occur yet. That was sort of the final package of God saying, okay, you know, it's complete. The new covenant is now officially fully inaugurated. And from there, things, you know, things go on. So I, I wanted to tell that story of the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple because it's a fascinating story. And it really kind of will conclude, um, conclude this story. I mean, there's a sense in which Jesus triumphant concludes a lot of what the whole series is about. Let's put it this way. Jerusalem judgment will be a, sort of an epilogue. You know, right? That's a good way to, to put it. Series. Yeah, yeah I, I'm really, yeah. I'm really looking forward to that one. Uh, so, Brian, can you tell us where people can buy this series of books, and uh, and and this one in particular, Jesus Triumphant, and where they can find you on the web, please? Sure, it's Amazon.com is the exclusive. The exclusive uh, uh, distributor for it, you can get it on Kindle um, or – actually, it's – yeah, okay, wait. You can get it on Kindle or paperback or audiobook. Now, Jesus Triumphant is the only one it's, – it's not on audio yet, but all the other ones are on audio. And um, But if you want to find out more about the series before buying it, definitely go to chroniclesofthenephilim.com because I've got a lot of videos on there, free free articles, explanations, synopses. I even casted all the characters in the novels. So I've got pictures and descriptions, lots of cool stuff you can you can learn more about it and author videos explaining things. So chroniclesofthenephilim.com and you can also sign up for my uh, e- newsletter update about I, I have different articles on a lot of these things that I they, like the book of Enoch and stuff that I send out. Um, so that's where you get the information and that's where you can buy it. But I wanted to mention one other thing and that is uh, on August 10th um, I have the Chronicles of the Nephilim is a is a gritty series. What I mean is the Bible talks about how evil man really is. And I wanted to be true to that. So uh, there's a lot of evil that occurs in the novels. There's a lot of redemption, but there is a lot of evil. And what I mean is there's some sexual sin, there's violence, a lot of violence, because there is in the Bible, right? As well as some some bad language at times. So I would rate the books about PG-13 and sometimes sometimes even a little bit R. And so th- those who are have weaker stomach or those who who are easily offended by that. Um, I wanted to do a version for them. And so I now have a complete new version of the entire series. It's called Chronicles of the Nephilim for Young Adults. And what I did was, and so you could look up any of them, um, Noah Primeval, I have a Noah Primeval, but then I have Noah Primeval Young Adult Edition. And what I did was I, I cut out all the sexual stuff that's in there, and I pull back on the violence in the language, so that those who are a little bit more sensitive won't be won't be bothered at all. And 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 young adults, young kids could read that and and be totally happy, totally fine. So there's two versions, and you can get them all. All of them are available on Amazon, but on on August 10th, they're going to be available in multiple formats through Smashwords as well as iBooks and Scribe. So they're going to be all over the place. The young adult version will be. 
but the full adult versions are only available on Amazon. Okay, good. Thanks for pointing that out. And um, I just say from my opinion, um, I don't think the graphic stuff, uh, especially the of a sexual nature, is too is too graphic. So don't be put off if you're an adult listening to this. Definitely um, don't be put off because um, it's it's not too bad. It's not. Yeah, I try. I try. I try not to be too explicit. Sure. But, but I also try to indicate clearly that, that there are sins going on here. Right, you know. Right. So. And okay. Uh, now the other thing that I wanted to ask you about, Brian, is it available the the book of uh, appendices that you have? Is that also available? Yes. Um, thank you for bringing that up. One of the things that I've heard from a lot of readers is. Uh, they really love the appendixes, appendices almost as uh, – some of them said they love it as much as the, the novel. And because what happened was because I was doing all this creative, you know, imaginative stuff that people have not really done before when they're retelling Bible stories, I knew some Christians might be a little dubious of that, a little skeptical, a little doubtful. And I wanted to provide my research to sort of show them, no, look, this is a, this is rooted in a lot of biblical historical research. And, you know, I like that stuff myself. So anyway, every book ha- in the series has an explanation of where I'm getting this stuff from. And people have loved it so much that I took the, all the appendices from all of the Chronicles, put them into one single book called When Giants Were Upon the Earth. And it really works because for those who want just the Bible study material and the historical research, it's all aggregated into one book. And, and, and that's one of the best selling books in the series too, because people just love that stuff. So again, you can get that at amazon.com or if you want to read more about it, go to Chronicles of the Nephilim and I've got a separate webpage for that book as well. And, and, uh, yeah, it's turned out to be really well received. Yes. It's, um, I can't wait to read it. Um, I've got it and I'm look, very much looking forward to reading it. All right, Brian, thank you, for, thank you for joining us again on Like Flint Radio. Brian Gadawa. Thanks for having me. Bye. Well, how good was that? If you'd like to hear more, continue listening after our outro music because there's uh, a little bit more that I um, couldn't find a splice in somewhere, so I just decided to put it in after the outro music. It's, uh, you'll find it interesting, so stay listening. Um, I know so many of us don't wait for the credits to roll before we leave the drive-in or the picture theatre. Um, I was always the one who, who was last to leave in case there were any bloopers or whatever. You know, my wife would be there saying, come on, let's go, let's get out of here. And I reply, no, 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 wait, we might miss something. Now, that being said, um, i got to confess, I listen to a lot of podcasts, but I always scroll through the intros to get to the guts of the topic. But um, for some reason, you know, because of that picture theatre, movie theatre experience, um, I always listen right to the end. So uh, who can say? Okay, now, if you want to hear more of our shows, go to our website, likeflintradio.com. Check out our archives there. We have a few shows from Future Quake South Africa. We've got some more from Future Quake Southern Hemisphere and, of course, from Like Flint Radio. If you want to write to me, you can write to me at gk at likeflintradio.com. And also, please share our shows around. Um, Feel free to share them around. Please consider emailing the link to our website to all your friends and family. Um, Help us along a bit. We don't ask for any donations. Everything's free. We pay for it ourselves. We don't get any assistance there. So um, if you could help us out just by sharing it around, and um, we would be greatly encouraged, and I thank you in advance for that. Okay, until next time, I'm your host, GK. God bless and hooroo. Also, 
also about the census. Uh, you, you mentioned the census of uh, queerness, and uh, that's another thing that uh, I, I was uh, really, yep. really uh, pretty interested in. Yeah, uh, I mean, why, why, is, uh, we, oh, go ahead. No, no, it's fine. Yeah, you, you always wonder, why would a census inspire an uprising? That's To us, it's not important, but it's very, very important to the Jews mm-hmm. because the census was the means by which um, they could number the people and have control over them, and they felt that only God yeah. – could could give a census, which is why the, God even was against David when David gave a census, you know? So they have a right. history of being against that, and that makes sense, you know? I, unfortunately, I didn't get into Judas's story. I just use him as sort of a, a, a reference to the origins of the zealot movement. Uh, but yeah, you're right. It, it is a fascinating story in and of itself. Sure. I, I, I really think it is, too. I, I, and, I, and I was just so fascinated you used the character to kind of get things in. Uh, also, yeah. with the, uh, with the uh, two, two, uh, uh, the two uh, bandits, basically, uh, yeah. uh, Justice and Demas, uh, because uh, I, 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 I knew I knew those names, and it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I I, I, I that that was clever. I I, 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 another thing I'd completely forgotten. But it's like, wow, that's a cool little detail that a lot of people don't know about. You know, I oh. mean, uh, now now in old days it did. Yeah. You know, and yep. and uh, but yeah, it's just uh, really really cool that you use them. The two of them end up part of the story now because you know you know when I when I saw. Uh, I, I think it was Demas uh, was a good one that uh, that he was taking him into uh, into Gehenna. I, I, I immediately thought of Dante with uh, with Virgil. Uh huh. That was the first thing that came to my mind. And, yeah. uh, and of course, you know, you, you're not doing that. Uh, but but at the same time, it, it, it really hearkened that to me. And and it was like, oh wow, that's way cool. And uh, course, so so I, I I really found that really interesting. That all goes back to Enoch, actually, because Enoch was the first one where he's the first one who's taken on the trip. I don't think he's the first one in, right. in ancient literature, but he's the one that that we refer to that he was taken on a trip of 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 the of heaven and hell, so to speak. You know, right, right, yeah, and, and yeah. I thought I thought that was just really cool the way you did that. It was very clever. Um, so, have you you actually read and, the whole and, book too? Uh, no, I, I jumped around. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll be really honest. I jumped around. I, okay. I, I started at the beginning, and I, and I kind of got a feel for what was going on. That's and okay. uh, it, and I, well, I've been I've been really caught up with a lot of other things too. I I just started a, a class with uh, with a Dr. Heiser uh, doing a Hebrew. Oh, cool. And, uh, so I've, yeah, yeah, I've been looking forward to doing that, and. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, I've been kind of juggling that around with some of the other things I've been needing to do. And, but, but, uh, yeah, I, 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 I jumped around in the book a little bit. And, uh, and when I saw that, uh, when I, when I, when I saw that he was, uh, well, Demas was, uh, one of the two that was up there. It was like, oh yeah. <laughs> so I had to back up and go forward. You know, it was one of those things like, I can't miss this. So, so I, I did that. Like I say, that was really cool. It was really cool the way you did that, and mm-hmm. uh, and and I enjoyed that a lot. Um, and, and, and you know, it, it's kind of it's kind of cool just to to see those those um, different diagrams. You know, the the Enoch diagram with the yeah. with the Dante, and and when when you look at those, you know, you can see where there's a 
things in common and things that are different and and, and kind of how to I, I, I don't know. It, 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 it's like, uh, you know, the compare and contrast, uh, you know, you, you see where they, they overlap and you also see where they differ greatly. And uh, one of the things about uh, about that diagram of, uh, of, of Enoch, because it shows the uh, – uh, and, and, and I think the Bible has a couple places where it talks like this, uh, where it talks about the pillars and uh, things like that. Yeah. Uh, and in the, the, that's very strongly paralleled with uh, actually what's in the Quran, and, and and you know you really can't take that as necessarily a literal picture, but it, it does give you kind of a, an image of uh, of how the ancients perceived the ancient the world at the time. Yeah, because uh, it's also Sumerian, isn't it? Did yes, it have the Sumerian there too. Yes, yeah, yes, absolutely. Yeah, and absolutely. and and that. It affected all the Middle East and uh, and, and, and their picture. Now, now one of the things about that, um, I, I remember uh, uh, reading in, in uh, uh, when I was reading uh, some of Umberto Eco's stuff. Uh, he and and there was also another book that talked about it too. Uh, had had probably one of the more um, intellectual flat Earth theories. That was presented uh, before, you know, before Ptolemy and everything else. He was probably like 1100 AD, and uh, and, and and that was really actually kind of rare because most uh, most intellectuals uh, knew that, that that the Earth was a globe, right? And that, uh, but but the but the uh, guy that uh, they named, I can't think of his name either. He's one of the few Christian uh, uh, writers that actually presented a flat Earth theory because it was basically a pagan theory. And and he uses the mountain ranges, and he juxtaposes them in a way, you know, like the the, the uh, and the Caucasus and all the others. He puts them up in a way where they they look lo- a lot like the uh, mountains, or like like the uh, the the, uh, the way that the uh, pillars are, are set up yeah. to hold up the heavens. Yeah. And 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 that uh, that was one of the things that I was uh, always struck by. Uh, with that that particular thing, and so when I saw those again, you know, I, my mind automatically went back to that, yeah. and uh, and and it's just uh, and, and it's an interesting image, it really is. But it's it, it's also one of those times when when you know, I I think it's pretty clear that uh, that the Bible is is being um, not literal, uh, you know, more more of a uh, picturesque kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love I love the way you do those uh, those appendices. Uh, those are just fantastic, and I'm a big fan of them. Cool, cool. And, cool. Uh, well, I've been I've been talking them up to Garth too. He he likes that kind of stuff too. So uh. yeah, um, it's the it's the bit that I um, spent the most time on, and I I think uh, we might I think we might get you back, Brian, if we can, sometime in the future, and we'd just absolutely. do that one one appendices book. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> Let's yeah, but, do it. But next time, Cliff, you're going to Denny's, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. I'm going to Denny's. <laughs> oh, I'm going to Denny's. I like Denny's. 